You're listening to the weekly podcast of the services at Stonegate Fellowship Church in Midland, Texas. For more information about Stonegate, visit StonegateFellowship.com. Let me, uh, while you're getting settled in, let me remind you of a couple of things. Um, if you're kind of in the, in the process of doing Stonegate Odessa with us, I believe this weekend is the weekend they kick off the the training, getting ready for that. So we're excited about that. If that has nothing to do with you, just disregard that message. But we're excited about it. The core group to start that, uh, that satellite campus is already twice the size of the core group that started uh, Stonegate Fellowship Midland. So we're excited about what the Lord is uh, possibly about doing in that regard. Also, uh, we have a Glorietta trip coming up again, a men's work trip to Glorietta. It's a week from this weekend. So two weeks away, basically, a week and a half away. And we've got spots available if you guys want to go. If you haven't been on the trip, you're certainly welcome. I know we've gone twice already, but if you, uh, if you think that, well, I haven't been, therefore I don't qualify to go, that's wrong thinking. Uh, so be a part of the trip. If you consider yourself um, not a handyman, uh, be an encourager and learn to be a handyman um, and hand people things, and that would make you a handyman. So um, uh, the rest of the group, what's the limit? How many are we taking? How many can we t- 35. So if you're interested in that, uh, let Joe know, call the office or email him and get up to Glorietta. If you've never been to Glorietta and just like to see what it's like, it's worth the trip just to sort of act busy and be up there for a great time. And it's just a beautiful place. And, and that reminds me of also, if you have any influence on the lives of uh, students, teenagers especially, who have finished the 6th through the 12th grade, uh, it is um, the greatest thing you can do for them is help them find a way to get to camp. Uh, this summer with us. I'm just telling you, it is, uh, I, I oftentimes speak in exaggeration. I can't exaggerate that. Um, if you would like to be a part of volunteering and, and being a part of that, or if all you can do, I say all you can do, maybe the most important thing you can do is commit to some very specific hours of prayer while we're away at camp. It is absolutely, absolutely critical. And the investment that this church makes in camp uh, is the single largest investment on an annual basis we make. And our goal is to take a thousand kids this year. We already have more kids signed up at this time this year than we usually have by the end of April. So we're excited again about what uh, the Lord is doing. Let me open with this word out of Psalm 119. Just read it over you, then we'll pray. And then we'll get into this quite interesting topic of Melchizedek in Hebrews. So Psalm 119 Verse 17, these are the eight verses I've tried to read just about every day out of Psalm 119. Deal bountifully with your servant so I can live and keep your word. Open my eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Verse 20, my soul is consumed longing for all of your rules all the time. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes or leaders or powerful people sit and plot against me, I will meditate as your servant on your statutes. Your testimonies are what I delight in. They are indeed the counselors of my soul. Let's pray together. Father, thanks again for this morning, the opportunity to freely gather in a crazy world and a crazy city to get our bearings, to hopefully have our eyes opened by you, to see wonderful things from your word, to be reminded of the uh, grace and mercy of our salvation, 
the representation we have in our high priest, Jesus Christ, who intercedes for us and at all times and saves us to the uttermost. Give us wisdom as we not only look into a bit of a cryptic figure, but also how to look at certain passages like this. And as we leave this place today, I pray that each of us would understand the pulpit you have given us in our daily labor, and we would preach from it wisely. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll find your way to, first of all, 1 Timothy 1, and that's in the New Testament, just to the left of Hebrews. I want to start there because we have an interesting topic today. Uh, This guy called Melchizedek, he's an interesting guy. I would call him somewhat cryptic. Um, It's guys like Melchizedek that make for um, a whole class you have to take in seminary to try to figure out if you can figure it out, and um, you won't. So I want to... um, Begin with a warning there on your notes, a warning from Paul regarding mysterious, difficult, and tough passages. Because, um, I don't mean to offend anybody here, but I've already heard from many of you who are, who are incredibly excited about finding out about Melchizedek. I want to tell you, you're going to be incredibly disappointed uh, by the end of this day. Uh, my intention, once again, is really not to try to give you an answer. I, I'm tired of acquiring answers from preachers and then finding out maybe that wasn't uh, um, right, rather than being taught how to pursue answers and let the Holy Spirit guide you into answers from the Holy Scriptures. So I hope I'll, hopefully I'll teach you that and show you some things and teach you some things about Melchizedek. But if you look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul has some, uh, some words about how we look at difficult things. In verse 3 he says, I urged you, he's speaking to Timothy, When I was going to Macedonia, I wanted you to remain at Ephesus so you could uh, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Listen to the aim or the goal, the when in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. They desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or things about which they make confident assertions. You've heard that phrase, someone knows just enough to be dangerous. That's really what that that statement is right there, is people know just enough to be dangerous or they've read one book on the subject and, um, and therefore they're an expert. 2 Timothy chapter 2, let's look at another warning. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we'll look at one verse here. 2 Timothy chapter 2, again, Paul writing to Timothy. Verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but it only ruins the hearers. And then he goes on this, I'll read verse 15. So do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And and the word of truth, again, God's word. And it is a calling on your life to learn to accurately handle the word of truth. Uh, The sign of your maturity is not how much you attend church. The sign of your maturity is how much you can even check what is being taught to you because of your maturity in the scriptures. Uh, and and I, you must be a man who pursues 
the word. Now, before we get into Hebrews chapter five, go ahead and find your way to Hebrews chapter five because that's where we'll kick off. I want to remind you of um, the most important tool that you need in your study of God's word in your personal library. And it's a tool that will help you do exactly what I'm gonna try to help you do today. What I'm gonna do with you about this issue of Melchizedek is show you how I study a passage like this to try to get an answer. Uh, Someone asked me the other day, I had a a seminary student come in and said, I was supposed to interview preachers. And so they ask you all these questions. I've already, I've been asked these questions so many times, you know which questions are coming. How long do you spend in prayer? How long do you spend in sermon preparation? Tell me about your family and all that. And you're supposed to give all these beautiful, perfect answers. And it's really always kind of fun to jack with seminary students. And, and but I, anyways, um, they always ask what different tools I use when I study for messages. And they ask what commentaries I use. And I tell them commentaries are the last thing I refer to, not the first, because it's sort of like reading the cliff notes, then going back and reading the book. You already have something formed in your mind about what somebody said about it. Best advice I ever got from an old, old professor. He said, do all your work, do all your language study, make all your conclusions, then go find two or three of the best, most reputable commentaries and see if you agree. And he said, then here's what you find out. If your exegesis and your study of the scriptures agrees with all the commentaries, there's a good chance if they're reputable commentaries, you're on the right track and you're making the right conclusions and you've mined that truth on your own. Rather than raking leaves, you have dug for gold. He said, but if your conclusions are different from all the commentaries, then they're either all just stupid and you're brilliant, but he said, there's a better chance you're stupid and they're brilliant. So you might need to start over. So the reason I'm telling you that is because many of you also have study Bibles and you spend more time reading the study notes than you do the Holy Scriptures. You need to let the Holy Spirit open your eyes to see the truth of God's word. And the tool you must have in your library is an exhaustive concordance of the Bible. Some of you have it um, digitally. I'm not a digital guy. I'm, the, I'm apparently the oldest guy in our office because everybody's more digital than me. I still use paper books. And so when it comes to uh, the study of Melchizedek, you open it up and what you find out, and and I opened this one and you look it up and you get to Melchizedek right here and you see every reference of Melchizedek and you find out it's only in Genesis, Psalms, and Hebrews. And we're gonna look at all that today. And the way you study these things is you literally look up every verse to figure out what the Bible says about it. And then you're gonna be able to form your opinions. If you don't have a concordance, you need to get one. But here's the key. Make sure your concordance matches the translation of the Bible you're reading, okay? So for instance, if you're reading a New American Standard Bible, you need to go buy a concordance or order one. You're not gonna be able to buy one around here because our places don't carry anything you need. So you'll have to get online and you'll have to order a concordance that's New American Standard. If you like King James, I got one you can buy, okay? Because I don't use King James anymore. And you need to find a King James one, okay? If you use English Standard Version, you get the gist. You gotta, they gotta match. Otherwise, if you're reading a King James Bible and using an English Standard Version uh, concordance, you won't find the words you need to find because of translation, okay? So you, you need a concordance. You will become dangerous, if you'll learn to study the scriptures in the, with a concordance to see what it says, and some of you will become obnoxious, but that, uh, we won't tell you that that's already happened. But, um, so let's look at Melchizedek. Let's, uh, let me take you to the reminder that's on your notes. Reminder, the needs, the position, and even historical setting of the original audience. 
This is critically important. And, and this is where sometimes you can do some historical study about the audience so you can figure out their situation. Remember, the, the audience of this book of Hebrews is probably Jewish people, probably in the vicinity of Jerusalem, who are probably, and I can say probably, and the only thing I can say is probably because we're, it's research, it's not necessarily, we know this for sure, but by, by the text and by reading it over and over and what they're facing, what he's saying to them, these people are staring at possibly the disintegration of everything they've known historically in their faith. Some of them will probably see Jerusalem fall and times are tough. In fact, let me point you to something. You're already in chapter five, but just to give you context, go over to chapter 10, okay? Go over to chapter 10, keep your place in chapter five, but you have to remember what he's trying to talk to these people about. This, this audience doesn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They don't have Acts and Romans like you do, okay? They don't have all the stuff you have. That's what makes us sometimes dangerous is we assume this audience already knows what we know and they don't. He has a specific message he's trying to get to these people. And I would argue, I would argue, that doesn't mean everybody else would, I would argue he is trying to remind these Jewish Christians, listen, though everything crumble around you, Jesus is sufficient for everything you need. And let me show you why. Look at chapter 10, go to verse 32. Verse 32. And verse 32 begins to tell us that there's a bit of a challenge that they may be questioning whether it's worth it or not. But recall the former days, again, chapter 10, verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted on, you joyfully had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So you see what's happening, what's going on. Since you knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. This should, this should remind you of John, John the Baptist. Remember when he was in prison and he called his disciples to him and he said, I want to know if this guy that's walking around doing all this stuff is the Jesus I'm in prison for. He, he was dangerously close to wondering, is this really worth it? And this audience, I personally believe, and, and I'll show you here as we go from chapter five all the way to chapter 10, this audience is wondering, okay, everything's changing. Some of this audience, and, and you could even argue that this book, this letter could have come to them after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, are wondering, is this Jesus sufficient for my access to God? Is his sacrifice sufficient? And you'll notice as we study throughout April that the writer of Hebrews will say the sacrifice of Jesus was sufficient once and for all, once and for all, over and over and over again. He was the lamb slain for their salvation. So remember what the audience is up against. Where in Romans, we are taught that there is, no, there is no, nothing you can do for righteousness. In Hebrews, the audience is being told Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice. He is the sufficient priest. He is the replacement of everything you see and he is adequate. Now look at the paragraph I have for you there. Up to this point, Jesus is superior to angels. He's superior to Moses, but... 
What about the legal matters of the law and specifically representation and presence before God? This latter concern is the only basis for the rest the audience has been told to seek. Remember back in chapter four, he said, entering into this rest, they can't spiritually rest unless they know they are at peace in the presence of God. And the only way they can be at peace in the presence of God is either through a sacrificial system that never gave them great rest or something greater. And they have chosen to believe in Jesus as this sufficient entry into the presence of God. But remember, things are falling apart around them and they have to know. So look with me in Hebrews chapter five quickly and then we'll get into Genesis and Psalms. Let's just introduce this. Hebrews chapter five, look at verse Nine, and being made perfect, he's speaking of Jesus, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The audience would have read that and said, well, wait a minute, how did he get that? Because Jesus was not from the, the, the bloodline of the priestly line. How did he get here? He's not from the Arianic line. He's not a Levitical priest. How did, who changed the priesthood here? So they would have already wondered what happened here, but they would have been thinking about other things they've been taught. Go to chapter six. Let's, let's go ahead and get this all in our heads and then we'll come back. Go to chapter six, verse 19. And this was sort of a squirrel moment for the writer of Hebrews, because if you'll remember, He's talking about Jesus, the high priest. Then he goes into this whole thing about uh, being enlightened and walking away from the truth. Then he comes back to the subject in chapter six, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. There is again a reference of being in the presence of God, this anchor of our soul that we can be before the Lord where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. Now this, this word forerunner this is where your uh, concordance will come in handy. This is the only place this word is used in the New Testament, okay? Here's your fancy word, hapax legomena, okay? It means it's used once, okay? I'd say just use once if you want to, but if you, if you want to sit in a meeting today and go, that, that's, that's fairly hapax legomena in my opinion, and people go, what do you mean? I, it's very singular, but I'm brilliant. So anyways, where, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner, you might use the word pace setter. He's, he's paving the way, not representing, so to speak, as much as opening up the curtain and the opportunity. No priest has ever been referred to as a forerunner. It's already changing. If you start doing your research and you read all the references to priest, you're gonna find out none of them talk about a priest forerunning before you. A forerunner implies he is leading the way for you where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become, here it is again, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, a well-educated, so to speak, Jew, when he hears this word, this guy, Melchizedek, he's gonna know a story. At the very least, he's gonna know about it from the Psalms. He may not know about it from, well, he'll know about it from the Pentateuch as well because of Genesis. So now let's go to another passage. I'm gonna sort of... Um, Let's just keep reading chapter seven, verse one. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a 10th part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. The last part of Melchizedek's name is a reference to the word righteousness. 
Um, and then he is also king of Salem, that is the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. That verse right there is probably the one that is the most debated and hotly debated about who this guy is. And all, people refer to chapter three. Now verse four, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a 10th of the spoils and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from people, that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, that is Melchizedek, received tithes from Abraham and then blessed him who had the promises. Now we're gonna come back and read this, but I want you to now pick up with me in the whole story and let's go to Genesis chapter 14, okay? So go to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. As you make your way to Genesis 14, you might want to make a note that the importance of this whole priestly discussion to the audience of what we call the book of Hebrews, from chapter 4 about verse 14 to the end of chapter 10, this is the subject. It's the priestly office of Jesus, the sufficient sacrifice he makes. He, that's, the, that's the meat of the book. And then in chapter 11, he starts talking about what that means for you and I, the hallway of faith, and then chapter 12, the discipline of the Lord. And then chapter 13, he talks about some, really some exhortation of how we're to live our daily lives. It's a critical issue. These people have to know, what about the priesthood? What about my presence before God? Is this all worth it? Because the entire, listen, you can, you can choose to believe and, and walk in a faith environment. But all of a sudden, when that faith environment begins to be destroyed around you because of persecution, which most of us don't know, you need the assurance of knowing it's sufficient. And the writer of Hebrews is telling his audience, Jesus is sufficient. Now I know most of us don't understand that. I don't understand that. But when the edifice and everything we treasure when someday if it happens to us that we are not allowed to worship, when, when bulldozers plow our church buildings, when we're hiding in our rooms to read the scriptures, there will be a season. Even Paul the apostle says, we despaired even of our lives. So you think about this audience and they have been told that the Messiah has come and they have trusted in him most to the exclusion of their families because they have found the Messiah and he is greater than all the prophets and he is God himself and their families have rejected them and now they're being overrun and destroyed. Is it sufficient? And he's showing them this last vestige of an issue that has to be answered. Has a priest taken care of this for us? So Genesis 14, I should probably go there. Give me a second here. Genesis 14. So here we go. You're reading through the book of Genesis. You get to chapter 14, Abram has got to go rescue his nephew Lot. Guy was kind of always in trouble. And so there's a big battle that occurs. We're not going to go into detail, but in verse 17, we're going to pick up reading. So after this, after his return from the defeat of Kedar Lamor or Kedar Lomer or, or Ched and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, watch, there's two kings that show up here. The king of Sodom went out to meet Abram 
at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Nobody knows who this dude is. We haven't heard of him. We, don't, we, we, we have no history. We don't know where he came from. He just walks up. He's got a cool name and he's got bread and wine. Okay, I mean, and he had a friend named Jeremiah who was a bullfrog. But anyways, he, so, and that's kind of interesting because the fact that he has bread and wine, many commentators will talk about how that might be even a, a type looking forward to the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you can go off into all kinds of different things, but let me tell you what we know. Here's what we know. Melchizedek arrived with bread and wine. You know what we know about that? That's it. Okay, that's what we know. What did he mean by it? Um, they were going to eat and have some wine maybe. I mean, we, we know nothing. There is no more reference about what they do with that, okay? That's it. He was a priest of God most high. Now, any Jew reading that, like you, if you're not, I mean, we're not, not a lot of Jews in here, but anyways, you, you ought to read that and go, how? How? Because that's not the way this thing works out. We haven't even gotten to Exodus yet. We haven't gotten to Moses yet. We haven't gotten to all this. Verse 19, and he blessed him. That is Mel blessed Abram. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tithe or a 10th of everything. Now listen, this situation was as confusing to Abraham as it was to anybody else. Here comes this dude, because, hey, my name's Melchizedek. I suppose you're Abram. I am. Congratulations on your victory. A little bread, a little wine. By the way, let me bless you. I'm a priest. I mean, Abraham had to be going, wow, I, who's he? I have no idea. A priest. I'm not even sure I've met one recently. I mean, he has no idea. Who, you, there's no part in this where Abraham goes, long time no see. There's, there's no part, but watch what happened when he tithes to him, all these things that Abraham does, look at the notes that I've gave, given you on your uh, piece of paper there. Here's some things we know. Number one, he's a king. He's a king. He's a king of a place called Salem, which is, means peace. His name carries with it the meaning of righteousness, all kinds of references. I would call it types, and I'll describe that a little bit later, of the priest who would come. He's a priest. He's a supplier of blessing. What's interesting is in the order of blessing, the greater always blesses the one who is least. So, you know, a father would bless a son. A ruler would bless a servant. Now you have Abraham, who the Jewish people consider an amazing guy. That's understatement, really. Being blessed by a complete stranger who comes out of the woodwork with bread and wine and blesses him because that, he's assumed the role of greater than Abraham. So that's, that's another thing we, we, would, we would look at. And then he's also a recipient of tithes. He is paying, Abraham pays, pays tithes. And when you pay tithes, and especially a tithe that's a tenth, it is to be to a temple. It's to be to temple service, to religious servants. And Abraham's paying a tithe to this guy. Again, a complete stranger that we will know nothing else about. And finally, he's a real person. He is a real person. And this will come up later. I personally, I'll tip my hand to you. There's a lot of people who think this might be a pre-incarnate uh, expression of Jesus. I absolutely reject that because, and here's the reason I reject that, because Jesus was incarnated 
once. In order for this to be a pre-incarnate or pre-existent Jesus, he had to have been incarnated, taken on flesh as a man, the role of a king, the role of a priest, and the role of a ruler in a real place. Or it's the Chronicles of Narnia and he's behind a door in another world. And I don't think that's possible. What the text gives me is that this was a real guy who was a real king and a real priest. And for Jesus to be incarnated, to take on flesh, that happens once. I'll give you a reference just in case you're kind of interested in looking at this some more. Because you say, well, what about other instances in the Old Testament? For instance, in Daniel chapter 3, the three guys are thrown into the fiery furnace, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all right? And all of a sudden, they all look in the fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar makes a statement, depending on how you interpret it, it goes something like this. I see in there someone who looks to be like the son of man or the son of God, a fourth person. Now that, I would argue, is probably either the angel of the Lord or even Christ himself mediating and healing and and saving these three guys. But it is not an incarnated flesh person. Melchizedek's the real deal. He's a real dude. He's not a mystery. He's not a mystic. He's not a spirit. He's a man. And Jesus was incarnated once. So you can also look in in, uh, Genesis chapter 16, just a few chapters later, the angel of the Lord appears and that's a whole different issue. But I don't think this is the angel of the Lord. I think it's a real guy and God is turning the tables even way back in the book of Genesis. So go to Psalm 110. Go to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, I've looked in my concordance. I've read the first reference about Melchizedek. Now I'm gonna go to the next one, Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Most of the audience is probably familiar with this psalm. If if they were devout Jewish people and now they're, following this Messiah, and they have read these passages. Many of them probably had most of it memorized. Psalm 110, which in their reading was probably not numbered 110, and, and it, probably, it, it may or may not have said a Psalm of David. That's up for interpretation. But in Psalm 110, they're reading this their entire lives, and they get to verse four. And it says, "'The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind,' You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, look at the notes. Absolutely cryptic without the rest of scripture. This, this verse right here, if you're reading this and, and you're following really Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of our Old Testament, and that's what you're spending most of your time in, and you have the Psalms, every time you read this Psalm, you go, that doesn't make sense to me because there is no priestly order of Melchizedek that works in the, in the establishment of the law for us. You don't have an answer for that. You don't really even know what David is referring to except possibly the Messiah. And then he goes on to say, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. That's an encouraging word. So go to number two out of Psalm 110 on your notes because there's another phrase here. It says, you are a priest forever after the order. Now, it's interesting because if you do a little research and your concordance will even help you do this, that phrase after the order means you are declared a priest. It is intended, the intent is for you to become a priest 
or to such an end you will be a priest. It has no genealogical significance whatsoever. It is a declaration. Now, the scriptures tell us God can name what he wants to name. He can do what he wants to do. Psalm 115 says, our God is in heaven and he does what he pleases. It is totally up to the Lord. If he wants to declare someone a priest, he can do that. And that's what's happened, what happens here in Psalm 110 is we're given this interesting word that says, you're a priest forever because of the declaration of Melchizedek, because of the intent, because of the end in mind. And then verse three, another problem. You are a priest forever. Now the, the note there, number three says, forever is impossible. So something has to be up. No priest lasts forever, none. In fact, we'll see later on in Hebrews, we'll talk about this. Priests come, priests go. They live, they die. None of them endure forever. Something has to change. He's driving towards showing them the change is Jesus. Now, go back to Hebrews and we'll finish up here. Hebrews chapter five. And, and really, I'll just sum, I'm gonna summarize Hebrews 5, 6, and 7 as it relates to Melchizedek in these three points for you. So, you know, if you get to Hebrews, great. If you don't, because we may run out of time. So in chapter 6, verse 19, I'm just gonna refer to your notes. Jesus is described as no other priest before. I already talked about this. He's described as a forerunner. Also, up to this point, there has been no discussion of Jesus as our priest in the scriptures. Now, that's interesting, because if you'll start taking a look and you'll start reading through the scriptures again, you will find out that this whole idea of Jesus being our priest is uniquely important to this audience. Paul doesn't talk about it. He doesn't talk about it in Romans. He doesn't talk about it in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. The writer of Hebrews has to get this point across to this audience. Now, it matters to us, absolutely. But we see it in the context of the entirety of Scripture. But for this audience, this is the first time if I'm reading through the New Testament, they go, wow, there's a point he's trying to make here. It goes back to the first thing I told you. This audience has to know something about the sufficiency of this priest. And then number two, in verse 7, or chapter seven, verse 11 through 14. I'm gonna read through, you, through my notes for you, but I hope you'll go back and read some of this because I wanna get to the last part. What the audience already knew was there had to be a better priesthood. In verse 11 through 14, he talks about, look at verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, that is Jesus, from which no one has ever served at the altar. It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. And so he says, this becomes more evident because now we see someone that reminds us of what was spoken of in Genesis and in Psalms, verse 16, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, an eternal, perfect life. For it is witnessed of him, and this is how we get meaning out of everything we've read, you are a priest forever 
after the order or the declaration of Melchizedek. Now, let's look at the rest of these notes. Number three, since the encounter, and I, I hope you don't get, some people get offended when I shorten these guys' names. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I'm just tired of typing out Melchizedek. You type it out a few times and it just, you're tired of the little red line telling you you misspelled it. So, since the encounter with Abe and Mel, there was always a latent promise of a better day. Now think about this. Every time a Jewish reader of the Pentateuch or the Psalms read of Melchizedek and this priesthood, there was always a question of what does that mean? Where is that priest coming from? Who is that priest? Who will forerun for us? Who will satisfy us? Who will lead us to this place? Who will lead us to this peace? There was always a latent promise of a better day. Just how and when was yet to be seen, but now it's realized in Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is telling them this whole history of this guy named Melchizedek who blessed Abraham and was this cryptic person that we didn't quite understand was a demonstration of another priest who would come, a priest and a king of peace and of righteousness who would forerun for you. God set in motion so Jesus was not even literally connected to a priesthood that was faulty, so to speak. He brought a whole nother relationship. Let me show you another way to see this, okay? Another way to see this. Oh, by the way, when I do this study, and this is exactly how I did it, I write out everything I learn from these passages. I, I, what I gave you in the notes is how I literally wrote out my notes and then did a little bit of research on my own, but very little outside of that. Because here's what I don't want you thinking. I don't want you thinking that you have to read the Bible and you're only gonna get a little bit of information, but Patrick knows all the right books to read because he went to seminary. That's not true. Number one, if you're a Christian, you have the spirit inside of you. And when you begin to study the scriptures and you begin to walk through these points, it will be sufficient for the life that you need because the big question you have to answer is, well, so what? So let's keep going. See the issue another way. Here's a way I wanted you to see this. Genesis, a cryptic and a strange encounter, but one known by the Jewish audience. Remember the audience. It was a cryptic and strange encounter, but one known by the Jewish audience. In the Psalms, there's a reference to a cryptic and strange encounter loaded with possible hope and actually set against an established priestly order and practice. Known by the audience, possibly hoped for, but not certain in what it meant. What they did know was the system did not cleanse their conscience or satisfy their soul. But in Hebrews, to a people about to be overrun by persecution, Wondering if it's sufficient, critical, critical word. Clarity to an ancient people of history, so to speak, that a cryptic and strange encounter had meaning realized in Jesus. A perfect and eternal priest paving the way to uninhibited access and rest in relationship with and towards God. God had always set in motion a sufficient priesthood separate from a priesthood that can never introduce them. And that priesthood was the order of Melchizedek that Jesus made possible. I wrote in my notes, so what? Let me give you a so what? Because all this, when you leave, you go, well, okay, that's, that's interesting. The most dangerous thing you can probably do with Melchizedek is Google him, okay? 
I'm telling you, it, it's, it's just, you, you know, you might have as much luck coming to a conclusion as we are about trying to find that jet that landed somewhere, but you just, you're, it, don't Google it. Here's the bottom line, and I, this is not in your notes, because I asked myself, why, why does this matter to me? My access, continued presence, and ongoing rest and peace by God and in the presence of God is secured once and for all through a perfect priest who paved the way and secured access through his office and his actions. Your priest is sufficient. It's a totally separate priesthood sufficient for your access to the presence of God. And God set it in motion as far back as his words to Abraham through Melchizedek in a strange and cryptic place in a different time, but realized in Jesus. Before we finish, I got a couple of minutes. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. I wanna leave you with this word. Hebrews chapter 13. Go to verse 21. As we'll see in the next few weeks, chapters four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10, he keeps, he's gonna keep hammering home. This is not the last we've heard of Christ as our sufficient high priest and his sufficient offering. But even the writer of Hebrews will get to chapter 13 and say, what do you need to do with this? So go to verse 20 and 21. And I wanna just sort of speak this over you before you leave, over us. Now may the God of peace, who brought you again from the dead, who, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, here it is. May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you or in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then I want to ask you to look up one more passage and this will be our final word. Go to the left to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I, in just about every opportunity I get to speak, I probably end up in this regard towards men. And so you may ask, does this have anything to do with Mel? No. Um, but I still firmly believe, gentlemen, with all of my being, every bit of the blood that courses through my body, I believe the hope of this city, state, nation, and even world resides in the hands of men and women who do business, not preachers who stand up on Sundays. I believe it is up to you absolutely, to understand your calling. So I want these words to pour over you. So in 1 Corinthians chapter nine, listen to what the apostle Paul says in verse 19, and we'll finish here. Paul says, I'm free from everybody. I've made myself a servant though to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, you know what? I'll become like a Jew. I'm gonna read this so it'll, 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 you'll be able to see the gist of it. To a Jew, you know what? I, I'm, I act like a Jew in order to win Jews, I, I do not offend them. To those under the law, I become as one under the law. Then he kind of says, now realize I'm not under the law, I'm free. But I do this, I, I respect them and honor what they are that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, to the lawless, I become as one who is lawless. Now listen what he says, now I'm not being outside the law of God, I'm under the law of Christ. So he doesn't say I'm just gonna go out and lose it, but he understands them. As, as Stephen Covey says, seek first to understand, then to be understood, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, and I even look and act weak to win the weak. I have become 
all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Gentlemen, that's what you carry. The pulpit of your work is meant to be stood on so that you can proclaim a message that others might see and hear Jesus. And I hope you will carry this burden everywhere you go. And that the Lord will start allowing, here's the prayer I pray because it's so hard. God, and let's just pray this as, just before we leave. God, help us to see people the way you see them. All joking aside, God, <clears throat> I just as soon rear in somebody who cuts me off in the loop again. I just as soon run someone off the road who's texting and driving. I just as soon um, every politician that I see on TV these days disappear. I would just as soon uh, leadership at the highest levels be changed. There are people I run into, whether it's at the grocery store or a restaurant, that irritate me to no end. There are people whose lifestyle choices boil my blood. But God, I don't have the right, nor do I have the privilege, because my life is not my own. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for you. My life is not my own. And you have told me just through the life of Paul to see each person as you see them so they might see Jesus through me. And I am becoming more and more convinced, God, that's gonna take the rest of my life. I'm not gonna get this figured out by tomorrow. So I pray over each man as he leaves, whether he continues to meditate on what you have done through Melchizedek or what he needed to be here for this morning was to hear that his calling is to be lived out in his work, whether he's welding, whether he's digging holes or he's buying companies. And somehow our city and our state and our nation and our world have to see Jesus through the way we do work, the way we do governance, the way we do life. So may we preach well as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, see you next week. Well, I won't, but be here next week.